This is an ABC podcast. Australian director Ivan Sen has grappled with Australia's unfinished business as a settler state, its racism, its violence, in a career that spanned four decades. He's made movies and documentaries, and in the case of his most famous film, Mystery Road, spawned multiple TV series. And now he's back with a film called Limbo. And in a moment, you'll hear from him and actor Simon Baker. It's a film that I think speaks to our current moment as a nation and the necessary work of remembering. Hi, I'm Jason DeRosso. This is The Screen Show. Welcome. Coming up in this episode as well, another Australian, the actor Angauri Rice, will be talking to me about her terrific new TV thriller, another bestseller adapted by Reese Witherspoon's company, about a woman and her teenage stepdaughter who don't get along but have to bury their differences to track down their husband and father who's gone missing. It's called The Last Thing He Told Me. But we begin in Limbo, the cinematic alter ego of the South Australian mining town of Coobapedi, a place with potholed landscapes from opal mining where many people live underground in bunker-like dwellings. This new film from Australia's true multi-hyphenate filmmaker, Ivan Sen, He's writer, director, producer, cinematographer, composer and editor here, is about a white cop named Travis, played by Simon Baker, who rolls into town to investigate the 20-year-old cold case of a murdered Indigenous girl, Charlotte. Shot in black and white, it's a big sky, parched earth, slow burn film of sparse tempos and arid dialogue, an allegory of how political debates about historical injustices often play out in the real world, between those on the one hand who want to forget and say we all should move on, and those on the other who can't and won't until justice is done. It's well acted and nicely shot with Sen's landscapes looking like lunar terrain here in the bleached contrast of black and white. Baker's very good in the role as Travis. He walks slowly and speaks softly. He's covered in tattoos and comes with a murky past, and some of that murkiness is still in him. A stint in the drug squad left him with a heroin habit and his personal life in tatters. The fictional town of Limbo, like some alternate universe you can enter but can't leave, begins to get its claws in him. His car breaks down and he's suddenly trapped here, driving a borrowed Dodge from the local mechanic while he waits for repairs. He pays visits to family and suspects, Rob Collins, Natasha Wanganin and the veteran actor Nicholas Hope are all great in these roles. And he starts to piece together a disturbing puzzle of abuse and indifference. Limbo, which premiered in competition at Berlin, lands with a terrible poignancy. And it's a valuable addition to Sen's body of work. Ivan Sen and Simon Baker coming up. Charlie? Charlie Hayes? Who are you? Copper. Travis Hurley. What kind of name is that? Kind of name is given. How'd you find me? I just asked the cops. Seems I know a lot about you. You hear about my warrants? Not here for you. Hear about your sister? Yeah, which one? Charlotte. Ivan Sen and Simon Baker, it's a pleasure to have you on the screen show. Welcome. 
Thank oh, you. Yeah, good, good to be here. <laughs> uh, tell me about uh, how you guys met and decided to work together. You go first, Ivan. How we met when we when we first met originally? Yeah, it was it must be twenty? I don't know, twenty years ago, roundabouts. Yeah, mid. I reckon more, mate. Mid nineties. Twenty-two. Was yeah. it two thousand and three? No, I thought it was in the nineties. Oh really? No, mate. No, I, I, surely I had made beneath clouds, right? No, I don't think so. Really? No. Well, that's, that, well I thought no, it must have been two thousand. Anyway, it was a long time ago. We can't remember exactly. But um, we had dinner together about a project, which mm. which didn't didn't eventuate. But um, hey, I've always been a fan of Simon's work, and um, I just felt that this was the time to try and reconnect. Yeah, it, it was a, a story that um, I think plays a, a character that plays to, to Simon's strengths, which I think hadn't really been tapped in a cinematic way. And so I think this was a chance to allow that to happen. What kind, what strengths are you talking about? What in particular did you want to bring out from him? I was always interested in, in how his performance within a lot of the, the TV work he did, how he... There were moments where where I could I saw glimpses of 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 how he was able to convey his emotions and his thought process as a character without having to talk and just using his presence his nonverbal um, language, which which is a very difficult thing to teach. I think you've either got that or you haven't, and um, I think he had had it, had it in spades. And I just I was just dying to get get that you know to focus that get that under a microscope. Because this, the the style of the film has many elements to it, some of them visual, but some key stylistic elements that are, are about performance here. And, you know, it recurs in other films that you've made, Ivan, but here in particular this, this sort of staccato delivery of dialogue, a lot of pauses, and this sort of tension between what's being said which sometimes is very full frontal and quite aggressive especially when rob collins is on screen early with you simon baker you know and and yet that's juxtaposed with a kind of calmness um or or at least a lack of kind of motion in in the performance that obviously brings you know a great tension to to certain scenes how difficult and how long did it take for you to refine that rhythm and to find that space? Uh, not long. I mean, we didn't have time to muck around. And, you know, I, I kind of got the sense of what Ivan was wanting to do and the style in which he wanted to do it. Um, because, you know, you know there's, a, there's a, always a, there's a lot of cues. Generally, there's cues in the script, but there's also cues in... Uh, the style in which he's shooting it, and I'm I, I'm I'm an actor that's very aware of what's happening technically. Um, unfortunately, sometimes I, I I wish I could turn that off, but like so I, I knew what he was, how he was shooting it. So all of those things lead into the style, and then and then obviously the sort of things that he that he would say to me, um, you know. You pick up on those things, those cues, pretty quickly, and you know you're sort of adapting to it. And then you know it's it's a pretty quick learning curve. But I think I think by the time we started rolling, we kind of had it sort of had it figured out. And I think I think the very first shot that we shot of the 
film, Ivan, was in the car, wasn't it, driving? Yep. Um, and, you know, you've got like a, you know, a, a lens in your face. It's a pretty, it's a pretty tight frame. Um, and, you know, I think it was as simple as the conversation was, was just like um, too much or too much or, or, or not enough. And I think Ivan said uh, just a bit less. Yeah. So we kind of, from that point on, it's like you, you, when you have a director that knows that you can take direction and it can be very specific and it's very simple. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, and you know that you've cast well when that kind of shorthand is is all you need and you fall into that rhythm really quickly that's right for the film, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, look, I, I, think, I think a lot of it also, Ivan's choice to shoot it in black and white, um, that knowing that going into it, I knew... I knew that because it's in black and white, that the, the drama sort of lifts a little bit more off the screen. Um, so, um, in essence, I could I could be more subtle, you know. That's and, interesting. And yeah. Me- yeah, and I haven't mentioned before, like you know, you, you you can do the best work in the world as an actor, but if you're not supported by the director, if the director's not confident in exploiting that, knowing what that good work is that they want then you're really just a device for plot a lot of the times as an actor. Uh, but I, I knew that I knew that Ivan, that was what Ivan's sort of taste and, and his interest was in the style of story and the, and the way the character was depicted, that he was going to support those moments. Ivan, you've dealt with some of this thematic material before, of course, the notion of a community traumatised by, by a lack of justice by a disappearance that this this idea of the disappearance or murder of a young woman especially the way that trauma plays across a cultural or racial divide in a community and the absence of course of justice um tell me about the impetus to return to this terrain this time well, well limbo deals deals with the interaction between the white side and and the indigenous side you know it's uh, i wouldn't call call the cop a racist cop um he's just he's just he's just got this um this legacy that he's uh, evolved that's evolved and he's just part of this legacy that um of apathy and he's as damaged in different ways as as are the indigenous family and so um, I, I think it's more of a study study in in, in uh, trauma and and that interaction around white and black and the justice system um, as opposed to my other films that have largely dealt with indigenous an indigenous cop dealing with with the terrain of white and black that um, and not really belonging to either of those. Whereas this is very clearly defined that there's a there's one side and there's the other side, and uh, and then there's a coming together and showing that our society damages people on both sides, and some, you know all the answers are not always forthcoming. But um, I think there's a you know there's a chance to be optimistic about what 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 can happen in your future because. Um, can't get much worse than, than what's happened, you know. There are a couple of lines that 
that really stand out in the film and or moments in the dialogue where, and I think it's Rob Collins at one point talks about, his character talks about people expecting the family to get over it. And then at another point you've got, I think it's Nicholas Hope's character, isn't it, that says, I mean, on the white side of the, the ledger, if I could use that expression, you know, you've got dementia, you've got Nicholas Hope's character at one point saying, it was ages ago, I can't remember. I thought that was quite stark, that notion of for some, for one side of this community, it's like yesterday. And for the other side of this crime, there's a character saying, I can't remember and it's, it, was, it was too long ago. And I'm wondering if you could talk about writing those lines and perhaps, I don't know, if you were conscious about that reflecting a broader current issue, contemporary issue in Australia? Oh, look, if, when, you, when you, you grab truth from different um, areas that surround you and, and you let them manifest into something, you're going to end up getting presenting something that actually makes some kind of sense to people and people can actually see there are differences, you know, between between the indigenous experience and the white experience, and and um, I wasn't consciously trying to present, you know, uh, present uh, the white. I mean, it, it's there. It's within. It's there within the justice system side of things. You know, there's just no. It, it's a sliding door. It's it's a it's a, it's a what's the door called? That spins the spins around revolving, revolving door. Revolving door of of people over the last whatever hundred years of of government workers who have been tasked with dealing with indigenous people in this country, and they're, they're there for five years, ten years, like like Rob Collins's character says. You know, no one cares. You're, you'll be you'll be here today and gone tomorrow, and you'll get your paycheck and get your super, and then nothing ever changes. And that's exactly what he says. And um, so it's not it's not a personal thing you know for for the for the justice side the government side it's but they're dealing with with a trauma that's been passed down through generations and i think um limbo really shows how how this this thing never goes away it's always there and when i when i go back out to tumula at the bogabilla where my family are from the 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 impact of the, the the murder of 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 one of our um, relatives out there, Teresa Binge, is always just there. It's hovering around. It's just like a, it's like she's a ghost because there's no justice. The the, the, the um, perpetrator was never caught, and and that's only part of the, the issue. The other issue is that the police didn't move at all. They they just thought she'd go and walk about like a like in limbo, you know. And so. Uh, yeah, it's it's when you when you just dig deep details out of your, your your own experience and the experience of other people around you, the the what comes out is actually, you know, these artistic impression of truths, and uh, you you draw conclusions from that as you as you did. Simon, what? How did you view your character? What what did you think? Did you think much about what made him tick, or was that, or did you choose not to? Just sort of playing the surface and. I mean, because I guess there's, well, there's many routes you could you could um, arrive at to a character like this. But did you psychoanalyze the character? 
Because it's quite a minimal, uh, we should say to listeners, it, in some ways it's quite minimal. We get hints, obviously, of what's going on in his life and what we don't see in frame. And, you know, they're quite vivid hints, I suppose. They tell a lot about who he is. Well, yeah, well, tell me about how you prepared. It's really hard to talk about how I prepared for it because it is more of an internalised thing and sometimes it's not, it's, not, it's not so up here and it's more sort of in your body and, and, and um, how feelings translate into a physical aspect and I don't mean that in an external way. So, you know, I could, you know, I could make up some intellectual fucking psycho babble about it but the truth is, uh, a lot of it, a lot of it does come from feel, but you know, uh, psychoanalysis of different sorts is a big part of the process of sort of understanding. But um, you know, I, I could probably break it down into two sentences: is here's a guy that's very broken and stuck, and understands the idea of his own trauma, and he's able to uh, feel the pain and the trauma of this family, and and and, and not only that, w- w- see it. Um, and then see their their uh, generosity of bringing uh, you know of of, of um, accepting him or bringing him into the family as a as a as a very generous um, an act of kindness, and it opens him up in a way uh, you know, and that's pretty much you know a lot of the the, the simpler aspect of it. Mm. Um, Ivan said, tell me about Natasha Wangeline. And her character, she, I just found her, it's a great character. It just adds another dimension to the family and, and the interactions. How early did you write that character? Was she part of the initial sort of genesis of the idea? Yeah, she's always been there, um, Natasha's character. And she's someone who closely resembles a lot of the, the females in my family who have been forced to grow up become basically become a mother um, from a very early age, not necessarily to mother their own kids, but because of the environment that they've grown up in, they're forced to take that um, that role on board from a very young age, which is you know similar to a lot of uh, communities around the world actually. And so I wanted her to feel like she just still had this she's obviously you know in her 30s or whatever, but there's just something that reminds you of the time well the fact that she she there's a yet there's a part of her that didn't get a chance to be young i mean she 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 just just the simple things like having her hair in a fringe um she's never had that in her whole life as as in in her as an actor or within her own life and and her family didn't even recognize her um and thought that she felt so different and uh was the fringe a, a kind of gesture on the part of the character to sort of style herself younger? Is that what you mean? I'm not sure. Yeah, just I, I just think it gives the impression of that she's she's more of, she's she's younger than what she is. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and she's just got an incredible look, Natasha, and it's the kind of look that I wanted in the film. Um, yeah, I mean, there's she, just a nice scene. There's a nice scene at where she invites Travis for dinner. It's nice because I just think it's um, there's a vulnerability in that moment and there's a lack of judgment, certainly, and you get a glimpse into a very real sort of human desire. Yeah, and, and that's, that desire can be the fix for, for, for no matter for how it might just be immediate, but um, 
effects for the damage, you know, the of the trauma of that they've had in the family and within the community, not only from from this missing child, but all the other aspects of of, of an indigenous community. Yeah, there's she's we 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 see see the baseball bat falling out of the under the sink, you know, and and she's she's um, enjoying the company of this man who she, she's she's quite lonely. And Travis, you know, usually he. I mean, if you'd asked Travis if this he would be in this situation before he arrived in the town, he'd never, he'd never, you know, he'd say no way, you know. But he finds himself in this situation because he's he's also looking f- for some kind of um, connection or some something to get to help his damaged inner inner self as well, and the children help that as well. The, the children I always felt that the the children in the story they're a big part of pulling. Travis into the family and into and into their story. Ivan and Simon, it's been a pleasure speaking to you about this film. Thank you both. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Cheers. Ivan Sen and Simon Baker, their very fruitful collaboration can be seen in Limbo, which is out this week in Australian cinemas. from a big screen mystery to a small screen mystery now and a TV series starring Nikolai Costa-Waldau as a man who suddenly goes missing from his comfortable San Francisco life. The clues all point to some kind of corporate foul play because he worked as a computer programmer for a tech startup that has just become engulfed in a massive financial scandal. The series is an adaptation of a best-selling novel by Laura Dave called The Last Thing He Told Me, and it's produced by Reese Witherspoon's company, who also made Big Little Lies. It stars Jennifer Garner as the man's wife and Angauri Rice as his daughter from another marriage. And these two do not get on. And so what the show is really exploring within its well-paced thriller framework is this difficult relationship between a teenager and a middle-aged woman. It's a show that explores in surprisingly delicate and insightful ways the crossed wires, the guilt, the resentments, and the begrudging respect that starts to emerge, but is very, very hard won. The last thing he told me is screening on Apple TV Plus, six episodes. If you haven't read the book, and I hadn't, there are twists galore that you probably won't see coming. And Gowrie Rice, who is making a name for herself at the moment, having come to many people's attention in the Mayor of Easttown, of course, but also starring in a lead role in the upcoming Mean Girls musical. Well, you'll meet her next. I was thinking of making the dinner we had at Poggio, the pasta Bailey liked. Don't be so surprised. No, I no, cook. I know, I know. I can cook. It, it just sounds ambitious, especially <sighs> when we could, you know... Order in from Poggio. Oh, you're such a wise ass. Is that Ava again? It's pretty insistent, even for him. Yeah. Same old shit. Morning, Bailey. Can we go? Well, I think I should get dressed first. Dad, I'm gonna be late. Fails. We're all five minutes from school. I know for a fact first period doesn't start for 20. How about we start with good morning? 
I'll wait out front. You're gonna start running in the morning. <sighs> Just wait it out. And Gowri Rice, welcome to The Screen Show. Thank you so much. Now, um, in doing some research around this, I realized that you are a massive book fan and you have your own book podcast, The Community Library, which I was listening to actually before interviewing you. And this, of course, is based on a book, The Last Thing He Told Me, a very well-known book. First of all, had you read the book before? I hadn't before I got the got the email about the show. I hadn't read the book, but I knew of it because I follow Reese's Book Club and Hello Sunshine and, and all of that on Instagram. So I knew about it. I actually read the series first. I read the scripts first because my audition was coming up and I thought, oh gosh, well, I, I think I should read the script first. So I did. And then after my first audition, when I got a call back, then I read the book and I, I read it so quickly in like three days because it's so... It's so gripping. It It's so quick, so fast paced, but it takes its time with emotional beats. So yeah, I was really excited to work on it, especially because Laura Dave, the author, was creating the show with her husband, Josh Singer. So I knew yeah, I that- was really interested in that. I, I That's what I realized as well. Laura Dave, who wrote the novel, is married to Josh Singer, who is the showrunner. Yes, yes. So it was it was great to have them as sort of a, a power couple resource on set because they obviously know each other so well, but they both know the story so well. It's it's Laura Dave's creation. It's it's she has thought about every single moment in that story and then collaborating with her and and, and knowing that she'd had so much input into the scripts and the series was really comforting because it, it it made me feel like, oh, okay, we have her her guidance and her approval for everything that happens in the show she's thought about and and had input in. Yeah, there's the, there's the brain's trust there that you can consult should you have, have a query about sort of motivation or tone or whatever. I, I imagine that that would have been really helpful. I, I read somewhere about Jennifer Garner. You talk about it being a compelling book to read. She's spoken about, I think, reading it to one of her children at night and that same feeling of it being such a page turner. Yes, yes. Uh, she told me that story. And she actually, she carried the book around with her on set. She has this like dog-eared underlined um, copy of the book that she she brought with her every single day. And she would read it in between setups and, you know, underline things. And yeah, she was very dedicated to the text, which was so inspiring to see. Yeah, I was going to say, is that uh, is that useful in your opinion? I guess people have different opinions about that though, don't they, right? Like um, whether whether it's useful to have that, a text or whether that can start to be a bit of an albatross around your neck, you know, whether that whether that can, because obviously a TV show or a film is different, is a different sort of medium mm. to, to a novel as well. But she clearly found that useful. Yes, I think it definitely depends on the person. I think what's special about the last thing he told me, the book, is that it's all told from Hannah's perspective. So you get so much in that story of of her real-time thoughts. Whereas for Bailey, my character, we get more insight into her perspective in the show. I think it's just different which whichever way you approach it. But for me, at least, it was really helpful to have Laura Dave there on set because any question that I asked her or that I had for her, she would have an answer for, which was which was incredible. Yeah. Do you remember, you mentioned the audition earlier. Do you remember the audition? I do, yes. I did a self-tape uh 
from Vancouver. <laughs> I did a self-tape, sent it in. I needed to sing a song as well for my self-tape. And then I got a call back and I was really excited but also so stressed out because I was working on something else at the time and I had no time. It could only be on a weekend. So <laughs> I was very grateful that everyone was able to uh, to do it on the weekend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because I'm curious um, about Reese Witherspoon's company is, of course, behind this and, and she, like you, loves books. I don't need to tell you. Um, and, and I really admire the work she's done in, you know, shows like Big Little Lies the, the way that I think she's her company is really pr- behind producing some some of the best sort of adult television at the moment and it's television that has genre elements you know noir elements as this does but it's also that uses those elements as a way of exploring family and exploring relationships which which this show does so well as well did you meet her I mean obviously you must have met her but but what did you have a sort of connection as fellow sort of book devourers and and lovers of the written word i uh, i i didn't get to meet her actually no way, um, really? yes she was she was very she's a very busy lady and she was working on the morning show while we were filming so yeah. and and on crawdads as well because that was coming out and and she was at the premiere in la but i couldn't go because i was working on something else so so we've just kind of missed each other but um i will say working with hello sunshine was was really incredible because Which is her company, I've, yeah. Yes, that's her company and I, I've looked up to her and her production company for a long time because they talk so much about and and they create TV shows about women and that is and focusing on those stories about mothers and daughters and female friendships. And what was so special and exciting for me to see is that's also really reflected in their production team. The producing team behind our show um, was just full of really cool women who have been producing for a long time. Some of them were newer. Some of them were not much older than me. So it it was so inspiring for me to see this production company team just entirely driven by women who are committed to telling stories about women and and the directors too so right inspiring. you've got three great directors here Olivia Newman who 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 directed where the crawdads sing which mm-hmm. you know I reviewed I, it was for me it was a misfire but she's a very I interviewed her on the on the show and she's a very intelligent director and and mm. anyway also first match which was also a very female-centered yes. film, but Denise Gamze Urgoven. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. I think she's Turkish, or she might be. But she made mm-hmm. a wonderful film called Mustang. Yes, I love that film about sisters, about seven sisters or something, wasn't it? Yes, 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 and and it was just so beautiful and meditative and so so quiet in its exploration of big themes. I yeah. loved it. So you had, and Leela uh, Nugbauer uh, was, Lila uh, is the other director. So three women directors as well on this series. Oh, we had a fourth as well. Um, ah. Daisy, whose oh, who's surname I don't remember. Um, but Daisy was also incredible. She directed episode five. So there's a difference, do you think, dealing with, well, having a set that's run by a female director um, as opposed to a set that has sort of, you know, on a TV show, multiple directors, but men or, or only men? I think each director brings their own flavour and style to whatever they're directing. I will say I do think it's important to have female directors when you're telling stories about women. I think there's a there's a connection there, especially because a few of the directors on 
on this show are mothers. So so they had that understanding of what it's like to have children and to be a mother and also to be a teenager and to have that relationship with their own mother. So I think that there is a connection there when you work with female directors on yeah. stories that are about women. The other thing I think that this show does so well is that it's about a stepmother and her stepdaughter and that is a particular type of relationship. It can be fraught and it's also about your character being a very stroppy teen and she has her reasons but yes. I think you play her ever so well and, and there is a real um, hardness to her surface and a meanness actually when she's talking to Jennifer Garner's character who's, who's the stepmother. They're both concerned about the disappearance of their husband or in your case, in your character's case, father, but mm-hmm. they, it takes them, it's a rocky road for them to unite on this kind of investigation that they both, um, you know, jointly carrying out into this disappearance, right? And, um, mm. and I just think that depiction in this show, that depiction of that stepmother, stepdaughter relationship is is so wonderful and so nuanced and and I, I wonder how much time you spent with Jennifer Garner offset away from work to get that vibe right to get that to get that tension mm. right or 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 not did you just kind of purely turn up mm. and leave it to the you know what you were doing when you were at work yes well um we were very fortunate in that we got some rehearsal kind of sort of rehearsal sessions with Jen and Josh Singer and Laura Dave. So it was me, it it was me and those three. And we read through all the scripts together and, um, and went through just the, the beats, the moments that we thought were important, underlined certain scenes or words or, um, ironed out some things that didn't feel right. So, so I was very lucky to have that time because you don't, often get that um and that was really the time where we pinpointed the moments where bailey opens up to hannah or the moments where they have connection and that's really helpful to do that before you go into filming because even though we did film in blocks of episodes so one and two three and four five six seven uh you still end up having to shoot a little bit out of order because of location so it was important to nail that trajectory down before we before we got in there um I also think that Jen is just such an incredible, dedicated performer and she knew that story inside out and we would, before we would go into a scene, we would run through, because the show takes place essentially over four or five days. Yeah. And before we would go into a scene, we would run through um, everything that had happened that day in the script. So we'd say, okay, this morning, Hannah and Bailey, they woke up, they decided to go to the church, and then they decided to go to the football stadium. And so we had, we had by the end, we had this really strong, clear sense of the, of the story. Um, and it was really helpful to kind of run through it each time we went into a scene. Yeah, I mean, and 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 then you can hit those marks where th- where things just gradually, but but very powerfully, start to shift between them, or or mm. and it's almost, I don't know, it's 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 just so delicately timed, I think. And there's a moment in a library where you your character has a bit of a panic attack, quite frankly, and I think mm. that's almost 
one of the first moments in the series, I think it's episode four, where you see that that pretty strong teenage rebellious sort of outer shell start to start to show cracks. Tell me about that mm. scene. Do you remember shooting that scene and 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 the emotion behind it? Yes, uh, yes, I was very nervous to film it because it is such a it's such an important scene in the in the show um, and in the episode. So um, I, I remember really connecting with that scene because she kind of reminisces on a time where she was a child and she went to a sleepover and um, she couldn't last at the sleepover because she she missed her dad so much. Um, and that really connected with me, just sort of that that feeling of going through when you're going through something big and traumatic and something that seems very grown up. And then you remember what life used to be like when you were a kid, you could just run back to your dad and everything would be fine. And Bailey is still kind of in that headspace. She, she, there's a part of her that believes that this can't be true. This can't be real. This can't be happening mm. because he's always there to run back to. So that moment is is the first moment where she realizes maybe he won't be there anymore. He maybe maybe it's the end. And she doesn't know. She has no idea because we're following her her in real time. These like three days after this big traumatic event, she's going through every possibility in her head. And and that for me was the first moment where she believes that maybe she might not see him again. Yeah. How do you approach, I mean, the emotion that you express in that scene is, as I mentioned, it's really on point. It's quite subtle, but it's also you realise she's, the character's going through a really devastating realisation and it induces this moment of panic. Um, How do you approach a scene like that as an actor? What what is your style? Is, Is it in terms of approach, is it rehearse, rehearse, rehearse? So it's almost second nature. Is it is it more spontaneous than that? Mm. I don't like to over rehearse things. I like to know my lines inside out, but I don't like to rehearse. I, I kind of like to learn the lines in a very dry way. <laughs> and sometimes to get to get it in my head or to get out of my head in a way, I will just say the lines as fast as I possibly can because it takes all emotion out of it and then you're just focusing on what you're saying. So that's what I did for that scene. That's how I learned it. I just learned it. I just learned the the monologue just as if I was reading a shopping list. And then I kind of approached the the emotional side of it um, almost separately. And then in the scene, they kind of come together. So so I don't really like to over-rehearse, but I, I like to know exactly what I'm doing. And then the emotion I like to be, I like that to be spontaneous because I think that's when it's the most real. And I, I also find that if I know my lines really well, like inside out, then I don't think about it as much. I know there are some actors who don't like to over-learn their lines because then they feel it's spontaneous. But for me... I get more spontaneity if I trust myself that I know them so I'm not thinking about what the next thing I have to say is. Mm. You know, you've co-written a book now with your mother. Yes. So you, you're obviously very close to, to your mum. First of all, I mean, do you want to write for the screen? Ooh, uh, good question. I, I, I think it would be a very different beast to tackle. I feel much more confident in, in the novel form. I think that's maybe because as a kid, I, I wrote stories 
all the time. I think screenwriting is a, is a different beast, but maybe, not sure. And what do you think of, I mean, I won't ask you a, a, a broad question, as broad a question as what do you think of this upcoming strike, or there is a strike now in Hollywood amongst writers, but part of the argument over the strike is is the role of AI uh, moving forward in, in, in potentially writing scripts or producing material. What's your thoughts on the role of AI and where we're headed when it comes to scripts and um, and human writers as opposed to you know, computer writers? Mm, very deep question. One that I one that I don't have a huge knowledge base on. So I'm always hesitant to talk about things that I don't <laughs> that makes know much That's about. <laughs> um, I, I will say, you know, I, uh, my mum's a writer and I've always loved writing. And there is something about that human process of writing that is so emotional and so connected to experience. I think what's really exciting for me is when I see, uh, when I read a script or I see a movie and the experience of the person writing it, it, it might be, it might be a completely different context or circumstances, but the emotion behind it is something that we've all felt. So I, I, I think that sort of human connection is, is what's really special about a good script. And for me, always in choosing projects and what I want to work on, the script comes first. Um, it's what draws me to something. And that's why I love reading so much. I think the written word is is so beautiful and, yeah. Looking back over your career so so far, and, and it's been so – it's been a very good career so far. You've had great roles and your performances have, have been wonderful. They've matched the role and what the role has required – we're going to see you next in the Mean Girls musical as one of the leads there, which is going to be a big film. When you look back, was there a moment you thought, oh, that was the break? Whether that was a lucky break or, or a break in terms of career, in terms of the size of the role you're offered, or, or whether that break was something you view as more internal, psychological with you, where you where something clicked and you thought, yes, I can do this or I want to do this. Was there a turning point? I I don't think so. I think I've just always loved performing so much and any opportunity that I've gotten to perform has been so exciting and and I never take the decision lightly. Like it's always every opportunity that comes my way, it's always there are so many factors that come into it. It's do I want to tell the story? But it's also, do I want to live in this place for three months? Do I want to work with this person? Do I want to see this person every every single day? Do I want to, you know, fly across the country and not see my family for five months? So it's there are there are those factors that come into it too. So so every every decision that I make, an opportunity that I get is is one that I think about a lot. What was the hardest and, one to decide on? Um Probably Spider-Man because I knew it would be huge and I didn't know much about it going into it. I wasn't allowed to read the script. I had a few phone calls with some of the producers and kind of knew some general ideas, but also because it was the first one and, you know, it was the first one with Tom and they didn't want to say anything about it. It was very, it was kept very under wraps. So I think that was the biggest decision also because like, I was 15, I was in grade 10, 
and I was still doing school and I'd already missed a lot of school that year. So I was like, oh, do I want to miss more school? I don't know. And I think there was also just that fear of like, yeah, this this movie is going to be huge. And that if I sign on and if I am part of it, there's nothing I can do to kind of stop that that hype around it. Like it is going to. It's a runaway train. It's, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's going to happen. I mean, it's huge, yeah. right? It's, it's marvelous. And you've since done three films. And what's it like working for that juggernaut as opposed to, you know, you had a role on The Beguiled, Sophia Coppola. You've done smaller films and, and, and I guess things that are much less CGI-based like mm. this show, um, The Last Thing You Told Me. I mean, what's it like going on to something, you know, such a juggernaut like a Marvel film? I mean, it's it's like being at a theme park. It's it's because you, there are these incredible sets that they built. I mean, for the second one, they built an entire section of Venice on a water tank at um, at the studios in London. So, like, <laughs> just the 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 grandeur of it feels so. It feels so big, and it even though I worked on the second one for you know three months. Um, I still felt like I didn't know anyone. Like I, I, I felt like there were just so many people around all the time that I maybe got to know about what felt like twenty percent of the crew, maybe even less. So, so it does, it does feel big when you're working on it. Absolutely, but I, I'm so happy that I was part of it because it gave me some wonderful experiences and, and all the CGI stuff, like. Sometimes you're acting opposite a tennis ball and a green screen, but a lot of the time they integrate practical stuff. So a lot of the water scenes that we did, that was all practical effects with water tanks and and people, you know, pulling a lever and and water gushing out. Like a lot of it is practical and quite spectacular to to witness. So and obviously Tom in the suit doing all his stunts was was incredible to see as well. So it, it offers a different kind of um, process and experience, but it, it's one that is so much fun. And Gary Rice, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you. Um, it's a great performance in The Last Thing He Told Me. Congratulations. And I look forward to seeing you in Mean Girls. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. And Gary Rice, The Last Thing He Told Me is on Apple TV+. Plus. this is happening your husband is not who you think he is why are you making him sound like some criminal mastermind i may not know why your father did what he did but i know who he is he lied to me and then he disappeared and i want to know the truth i'm telling you we'll find him hannah you need to get out of there now where did you get this tell me who sent you go now and her stepdaughter are in imminent danger. Is there something you're not telling me? They need to stay together. Well, we're changing pace for the last interview of this episode and heading to North Africa, the Moroccan film, the Blue Kaftan, to be precise, which is in Australian cinemas this week. It's about a couple who run a tailoring business in the Medina of the town of Saleh. Lubna Azabal is Mina, the business brain of the operation, who deals with the couple's demanding and sometimes unreasonable customers who want the finest handiwork and want it yesterday. 
She's a graceful woman who's no fool, although her composure is being tested by an illness that's slowly killing her. Saleh Bakri is her kind-hearted and gentle husband Halim, a master tailor, one of the last people capable of making elaborate kaftans using the traditional method, and he mostly works in the back of house. Their cloistered but contented routine is interrupted when they hire a young male apprentice, Yusuf, played by Ayub Misui, and an unexpected attraction develops between the two men. The Blue Kaftan is a delicately crafted emotive drama. It follows on from writer-director Mariam Tuzani's very fine 2019 film Adam, which also starred Lubna Azabal, about a widowed baker who takes in a homeless single mother. In both of these films, there's a sophisticated exploration of the tension between tradition, as expressed in traditional crafts, and ways of being that challenge social norms. I spoke to Mariam Tuzani when the Blue Kaftan showed at the Melbourne Queer Film Festival last November. Here she is speaking about the theme of tradition. I really believe that there is something very, very beautiful in tradition and tradition also comprises somehow family. There is something that has to be challenged in the traditions. Halim defends a tradition, he tries to keep alive a tradition, which is that of, of this ma'allim uh, tailoring, you know, making of kaftans. And it's a tradition that's disappearing because today we live in a world where things are going too fast, uh, where we don't have time for these kind of things, where uh, uh, working months uh, on, on a hand-embroidered kaftan is no longer, no longer has its place. People like Halim no longer have their place. And he tries to fight to keep this tradition alive, tradition that's been there for centuries. I am very touched by all these crafts that are disappearing. I am very touched by men such as Halim. I've spent hours and hours with Malim such as Halim that have told me about their craft and that, you know, with tears in their eyes have told me that they don't have anybody to pass it on to because there are no longer any apprentices because all the young, the, the young, the young men want to do other kinds of jobs that are going to be more lucrative, that are going to bring them money more quickly. And because I think it's just our minds are changing. We, we, I think, as human beings are changing, our perception of the world is changing. The pace at which we live our lives is changing. So I really wanted to talk about, about these artisans uh, that are striving to continue uh, living today because I think this craft says so much about, for, I mean, speaking of myself as a Moroccan, I think it tells so much about our tradition. I think it is part of our DNA and I think it has to be uh, celebrated, sublimated. And that's what I wanted to do through the film as well, to shed a light on, 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 on such traditions. And I also believe in the same manner, there are traditions that need to be, uh, that need to be shaken, that need to be questioned. I mean, homosexuality, this is one of the things I want to talk about as well with, with in my previous film Adam, uh, you know, the fact of being a single mother, uh, the fact of having to depend on a man as well, uh, of not being able to be independent in certain uh, in certain environments. Uh, so I think there are traditions that absolutely need to be to be questioned and to be to be um, to be to be shaken lines that need to be shaken. So for me, it was really, you know, saying that Tradition can be beautiful, but tradition can also be uh, the opposite. Tradition can also be imprisoning. When tradition becomes a barrier, we have to question it. So yeah, and the family dynamics in this uh, is really is really because I felt. I mean, I love uh, 
the intimacy of character. When I when I write the script, when I think of a film, I always think uh, of character. I'm always touched by characters. I'm always inspired by characters. And that's what makes me want to tell a story. And it's true that we have, I guess, a little bit this habit of, of seeing a certain image of a, of a of a, a family, and I wanted to also be able to question that the same in the same manner as with Halim and Mina and Yusuf. You know, we have a certain etiquettes that we like placing on 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 how we how we define love, how we define relationships. And I wanted this couple to redefine their love, to redefine their relationship to this young man that arrives. I re, I wanted to question the notion of love as well and how 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 we the experience of love. Because this couple transcends a lot of things as well, uh, in, and they redefine their own love. So I think these are things that I really wanted to explore in any case. Mariam Tuzani, her film The Blue Kaftan is in cinemas this week, and to hear that full interview, head to the Screen Show website and scroll back to the episode from the 10th of November last year. I'm Jason DeRosso. That's it for this episode of The Screen Show. Thanks, as always, to producer Sarah Corbett. We're brought to you by ABCRN. See you next time. listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.